Hello, and welcome to the She's Heard podcast. My name is Emily Jennings, and you've found the place where extraordinary everyday people from different professions and walks of life share about how they found their voice and are using it to speak up and create meaningful change. Today, I'm speaking with the kind, courageous, truth-telling, mama of three boys, family and sex therapist, extraordinary, open-hearted woman, Amy White Heffernan. In this episode, she gives us a behind-the-scenes peek into what it was like growing up Mormon, navigating the nuance of being a feminist and believing in gay rights, while taking a stand for healthy sex for everybody. She opens her heart and lets us learn from her heartbreaking, complicated, liberating journey to creating belonging. Amy also gives us numerous practices to help us better understand our sexual personalities, our turn-ons, and our turn-offs. Amy and I went to high school together, so you'll hear a few references to our shared experiences in adolescence. Also, in the description of the episode on SoundCloud, you'll find links to the numerous resources that are mentioned throughout the episode. You can learn more about Amy at amyheffernan.com. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Welcome, Miss Amy White Heffernan. Thank you. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you and to hear your story and to hear about what you're up to. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. You're doing good work, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Just so people get an idea of who you are, where you're from, what you're up to, you were born in Salt Lake City, and you lived there until you were 15, and you are number three of four children with two other older sisters and a younger brother. Then you moved to the Seattle area at Mm -hmm. 15, and you grew up Mm -hmm. in the Seattle area. And you were born into, your family is Mormon, correct? Correct, yes. Okay, so you grew up in the... My family is a lip, like, kind of your non-traditional liberal Mormon family, but very much a Mormon family, yes. Mm -hmm. A unique unique liberal Mormon family. (laughs) And we'll unpack that a little bit more as to what that actually means for people who aren't familiar with that. So you grew up in a uniquely liberal Mormon family, mostly through your teens and adulthood in the Seattle area. And Mm -hmm. currently you're a marriage and family therapist and a sex therapist Mm -hmm. and you're married and you've got three boys. Exactly. Yep. I have a private practice uh, for marriage and family therapy in Redmond, which is like the heart of Microsoft land. The heart of Microsoft land. Okay, cool. (laughs) Tell us about what made your family uniquely liberal Mormon. Okay. So my mom and dad, I don't don't know. They maybe are a little bit of black sheeps in their family in terms of being kind of hippie. Like they were from the, the time that I can remember. So I was like born in 1980 and from really like my whole life, my mom and dad both would have identified as feminists, which was kind of fun, right? And Mm -hmm. kind of even before it was really cool to be a feminist, my mom was very much like active in Mormon feminism particularly, but just in general, we grew up on this um, record player. We had this record player and we grew up on this album called Free to Be You and Me, which is by Marlo Thomas. And it's all about like, debunking gender roles and how mm-hmm. dads and moms can do anything and it was very much like it doesn't matter if if a boy wants a doll he can have a doll like and so mm-hmm. so very much in my family gender roles were not traditional my dad was the provider my mom also worked um but I often would see my dad cleaning my dad my mom would like mow the lawn the whole traditional gender role thing was really not typical in my house which so that's what fun. you mean? Is that what you mean by Mormon feminism? Like, um, that's such totally. an to me. <laughs> like, I know. How did those words go together? <laughs> right. So yeah. actually, Mormonism has really some deep roots. The, the women of Mormonism history have some pretty deep roots in feminism. Like, they fought really hard to get the women's vote. I think the worst, first Mormon senator was a woman. And, and so there's this really rich, lovely Mormon like roots of feminism, which is really fun. And my mom was 
particularly the 90s, my mom was really engaged in that movement, the Mormon feminist movement. A lot of women wanting to, like, um, get the priesthood and kind of just challenging some ideas about the social roles around womanhood. That was really, really clear in our family culture that that was important. And in terms of, like, liberalness, like, it's not completely uncommon to have Democrats as Mormons, but it's not very common, you know, and mm-hmm. my parents were very, you know, like politically, politically liberal. They were very, very much Democrats growing up. Like, I mean, even though they maybe tried to temper um, letting us know that, but it was pretty clear that they were supportive of Democratic presidential nominees and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So in terms of politics and then also in terms of orthodoxy, my parents were just a little bit more open, I think, than like the standard, very, very orthodox Mormon family. So it was, it was rich. Okay, and tell us about your birds and the bees conversation with your family. Yeah. This is such a great okay. story because I don't know okay. anyone who has this story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my parents were, because of, like, I think just their awareness and wanting to be really sex positive and just kind of that, that hippiness inside them, they made it a real point that they wanted their kids to have no sexual shame. Like, that was really important to them. So my mom and dad, they were very intentional about how they would give us the talk. Again, there was always open conversations about kissing and cuddling and stuff like that. But the talk, they wanted to be very specific about it. So I think I was about eight years old. And I can completely remember the couch pattern that I was sitting on and like the first house that we lived in. And so as my mom and dad, they sit me down, they're like, we're gonna we want to talk to you about some big people things. And they kind of just explained everything like, penis and vagina, all that kind of stuff. And my, mm-hmm. and my mom and dad, my dad particularly, I remember him saying that um, he says, it is a sacred act that men and women, at the time, it was very heteronormative conversation, but he, he was saying that men and women get to do this act. It's sacred. He's like, and when you get to do it, it's lovely, it's important, it's something that is celebrated and beautiful. And he's like, and if you have too much sex with too many people, your soul gets messy. He's like, you exchange souls with the person. It wasn't this like, don't have sex before you're married conversation. It was like, it's so fun. It's so beautiful. It's so sacred. And just be really intentional about who you have sex with because it's important. It wasn't like a taboo, embarrassing thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. So it, it was not off limits. It was definitely like on TV, there was like a sexy scene came on. It was like, all right, guys, close your eyes. Like when we were really little, but it, was, it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, this naughty thing that's happening. It's like, oh, that's just what mom and dad do. You know, that was more probably the language of, like, big kids get to do this, and then it's really funny and fun, and, you know. So, mm-hmm. so there was always this lightness. But what was kind of fun is that um, my, my dad at the end is always like, okay, do you guys have any questions for us? We want you to know you can talk to us about it, and if anything's confusing to you. He loves to tell the story about me, so I will also tell it. <laughs> so he, the, my oldest sister was like, so what happens when, like, the man's penis, like, goes up into the, the woman's uterus, and how does the penis get put back on the man, right? And he's like, okay, we've got some clarifying to do. <laughs> so he, like, always, like, teases that he had to, like, kind of clarify, like, oh, wait, the penis doesn't come off, it, you know, all the kind of things, yeah. so... That's like funny. And then my second sister was just more kind of embarrassed, like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to talk about this, you know. And then my younger brother was like clarifying like slang words. What does this mean or whatever, you know. And he says, but he's like, but Amy, like I was like very, very like thoughtful. And I was like, okay. And he, and he's like, and then I just said, I just want to know how it feels. And he was wow. like, oh, boy. Yeah. And so he, <laughs> yeah. he said, like from a really young age, I was really curious and open about sexuality and and so he's not surprised that I've become a sex therapist. I like that story because I'm like, maybe I was always meant to do this. You know? It's so great that both of your parents were part of the conversation as well. Yes, so it's like absolutely. an open conversation between both of your yeah. guardians. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's on the table and it's like, this is important mm-hmm, and it's sacred. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not taboo. And that's, right. And it's oh. not one of those things that we actually don't really talk about this. It's actually something that grown-ups do talk about together, and that's important to talk about it, versus this, like, oh, that's just a woman thing, or that's just a man thing, so you, you let them know what it is. It's like, no, partners talk about it together. We can have all the people talking about it, all open, you know, don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. 
their non-stress about it made it really easy for us to then approach them about it when we did have bigger questions. And lots of research shows that when kids feel like they can talk to their parents about sex, they're generally more open with them about a lot of different things. So if people are like, oh, I really want to be close to my teenagers, it's like, well, then you need to start young and also create a culture where they could ask you questions about what does a blowjob mean? Or, mm-hmm. you know, like, I don't know what this word that kids are using at school means and can you help me clarify that? Or, wow, my friends are having sex and I want to talk to you, mom and dad, about that or I'm thinking about having sex or something like that, right? When kids feel close to do that, they'll also open up to you about other things too. And I definitely think that that was true in my family. We were pretty, really, really pretty close with my parents. So are Doesn't there ways trouble, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, you're still human yeah. and you're still yeah, like exactly. little souls finding your way in yeah. the world. Exactly. So what are some things you're mindful of in terms of integrating body positive, sex positive attitudes and language with your boys? I went and saw this woman recently. Her name's Amy Lang, if anybody wants to look her up. She's fantastic. She's in the Pacific Northwest, but she's a parent educator about sexuality uh, with kids and teens. Her kind of, if you want to find her in the world on Facebook or Twitter, it's birds, bees, and kids. And I think it's birds plus bees plus the plus sign kids. She's fantastic, mm-hmm. though. But she was talking a lot about how you can incorporate it from a pretty young age of giving them books and just having the book be part of all the books that you're reading with them. And she has a resource on her page where you can find lots of books that are important. She says that by the age of five, kids need to know what the mechanics of sex is, Mm -hmm. five years old, because education and knowledge empowers kids to not be sexually abused and be able to know what they're talking about and empower them. Being responsible as a parent to have those conversations and it's not just one conversation, it's all the conversation. <laughs> you know, it like goes on, yeah. it's not just a talk, it's, a, it's something that you're going to be doing with your kids from the time that they're in the bathtub playing with their penis to the time that they're teenagers and out the door. She really is, has a great resource. Amy Lang, L-A-N-G. Cool. Yeah. You had like an inkling pretty early on. You knew you're really good at working with people. You've got an openness and a curiosity and an understanding and just a really comfortable, confident way about you when it comes to sex and bodies and relationships. And that's kind of what guided to what you do now. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of always felt like I think that doing therapy would be a really good fit. I've always been really good at people and trying to create a space that people feel open to talk to me and not feel judged. That's a good job. I like it. And then I always just felt like specifically like drawn to the sex aspect of it because sitting with clients, sexuality is something that always comes up that you're always, that's always in your room when you're working with clients. And I found that those sessions were really energizing to me and helpful for my clients to kind of have a place of saying things that sometimes they've never said out loud before. And so that really got me started to become a certified sex therapist through the American Association of sexuality educators, counselors, and therapists. People can say that they do sex therapy, but in order to be able to say that you're a certified sex therapist, there's a pretty big, like it's almost like a second master's degree with how intense it is to get the certification. I kind mm-hmm. of, I still always said, I'm like, they, the people go on a weekend trip and get certified. I'm like, this was not just a weekend trip. This took me a really long time. It's awesome. A couple months. Yeah. So I'm really we, excited Because we That's so been... need that right now in our culture oh. around all this Me Too movement and yeah. as we become more, you know, understanding in our language around the spectrum of gender and the spectrum mm-hmm. of sexuality and the differences yep. between gender and sexuality. You don't work with just heterosexual couples. You work with... No. Nope. Gay couples, poly couples. Poly's really trending right now, at least in, in the Northwest specifically, but... Yeah, I work with all kinds of relationships. So then how does that work with Mormonism? Well, here's what I remember from going to school. Like there was no caffeine. There was prayer every morning. There was certain clothing that needed to be worn. There was, of course, no alcohol or drugs or premarital sex. There was like sacred text studies. Like it seemed like all the time. Uh Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And I know this, those practices aren't just unique to Mormonism. I know plenty of other religions that have similar yeah. beliefs. Yeah, but. No. it is. It's like there's, um, it's definitely, I think Mormonism is a lifestyle 
in a lot of ways because of all the things that you've mentioned. You know how sometimes um, when someone is born a Jew, they're like always a Jew. Like if your mom was a Jew and you were born a Jew, then you're always a Jew, you know. Say Mormonism is in my DNA. I was born a Mormon. I'm always a Mormon inside myself. Like the word of wisdom is what they call it, and that's where no alcohol or coffee or tea. They can drink herbal tea, but, you know, if it's like the black leaf tea, they are technically not supposed to drink that. Yes, no sex before marriage. They had, for high school kids, they do the early morning seminary is what I think you were kind of talking about. When you go through the Mormon temple, you get sacred garments that you wear that is like part of your daily wear. So a lot of people call, people will say like, oh, the magic underwear that Mormons wear. So that's called the, the garments. There's lots of things that would be considered lifestyle things. That gives structure around ritual and boundaries yeah. and a sense mm-hmm. of, I mean, like I work in health. And so when I work with people who are detoxing, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So that's what we do. We're like, okay, wean yourself off alcohol, wean yourself off caffeine, go to sleep early, Mm -hmm. you know, have ritual in the morning to set your mind and your heart with intention for what you want to focus on and be aligned with during the day. So I can Mm -hmm. see how, I mean, in yogic, there's lots of practices that are aligned, that Mm -hmm. are like in that vein and in that family Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. rigidity and structure and commitment. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know, like, yeah. one thing you've talked about, that there were benefits to the structure mm-hmm. of Absolutely. Mormonism. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's like sometimes I, I wish that, like, I could unzip myself and have people see the complexity of it all. A lot of people have a hard time reconciling, oh, how are you a sex therapist and Mormon? Or how are you a feminist and a Mormon or whatever? And I think that it's perceived to be a very conservative organization, but there's also like many, many beautiful parts that also were part of it. With any big system or big institution, I feel like it's complicated. And mm-hmm. part of being mature is being able to say, yeah, these pieces that we hold about this thing that maybe we believe or have trouble with or whatever, it's messy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so my parents were very comfortable in the messy. They were comfortable sharing with us messy parts of the Mormon history, but then also you know, talking about things that were really helpful and important and beautiful about the faith. So I feel like I got a really rich upbringing that way. There was still sacredness about it, but there was also a feeling of being aware about how complex sometimes institutions and history can be. So so I did all the Mormon things all through high school and into college. I went on a Mormon mission to Japan uh, when I was 21 and then got married to my husband in the Mormon temple And yeah, and we were doing the Mormon thing for many, many years. And you recently left. You have asked some questions about what have been times when I've had to use strength. So, and I haven't really shared this very much in like a public way. So it feels like Mm -hmm. a vulnerable conversation to me. But I, I know, I think collectively organized religions are having trouble right now retaining membership. Like it's not just a Mormon thing. It's like a lot of Christian churches are struggling with How do we keep younger people? How do we stay relevant? Because of the unorthodoxy of, like, my family life. Like, um, for example, the LGBT issues with Mormonism and women's issues with Mormonism always were something that I had to nuance and find a place of balance for myself. Can you explain what you mean by finding the nuance, like finding your way of around accepting the parts that you didn't agree with mm-hmm. while simultaneously holding the parts you do agree with. Cause that's mm. life, right? Like yeah. that's loving yes, another human. Right. Yes. And so, but then when yeah. you get it on a bigger scale, like with a community and with the church and with the religion, being able to hold the paradox of that to a certain point and then reaching Mm. that point and being like, no more. So Mm. can you take us, take us into that (laughs) space of like, okay, I could hold the nuance and then I couldn't anymore. And what was that? Because we all have moments like that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So the two big things for me are the women's issues. So I'll kind of start there. And so, there, there is it's a patriarchal system, and that doesn't mean that all the men are, are abusing that power that they have, but it is very much a top-down kind of church, and the men that are leading and making decisions are men. 
you know, and at the very top, they're, you know, older men, and then on local levels, it's also men that making final decisions, right? And being that Mormon feminist that I have was birthed into this world, it was, there were things that didn't feel good to me. Um, sometimes just like imbalance of, anytime you have a patriarchal system, you know, how, pe- how women are treated, how women's voices are heard, how their decisions are made. And again, I would a lot depend on your local leadership. Like some bishops are fantastic about including women's voices in, and some are not. The women don't hold the priesthood in the Mormon church. The priesthood is what they would define as the power to act in, for God, and the women don't hold the priesthood, right? And so, and there's also some things, you know, in the Mormon temple that are sexist, and that was also hard for me. And so finding reconciliation with myself about how do I be myself and still be Mormon, Mm-hmm. around that, the women's issues, okay? And then the LGBT issues, the church obviously has a real conservative stance on gay issues, right? And it never really resonated with me, and my parents were also not, didn't reflect the church's strong conservative stance on LGBT issues. So from a young age, I remember my mom or worked with a man that was gay and had a partner, and my parents had them over for dinner. And I think that that was my first experience of, seeing a gay couple, like that was the first model in my life that I can remember of like, oh, they, these two are outwardly gay. They live together, they're partnered. So from a very, very young age, my parents were always open about that issue. And, and even the debate of, is it a choice or were you born with it? I just feel like my parents had a really great openness about gay people. Then I, then we moved to Washington and where I'm exposed to a lot of more different people. Cause in Utah, when I grew up, there was quite a majority of people in my life that were Mormon. My extended family, the kids that went to my school, most of my friends were Mormons, you know, and so there was very much that dynamic growing up. And then up here it was like I remember getting in a conversation with somebody that they were telling me for the first time that Mormons weren't Christian. And I remember being like shocked, like, what? Of course we're Christian. We believe in Jesus. You know, and so I didn't get all the Christian and Mormon conflict that there's kind of some disagreement about theology there. And so, so it was like, it just opened my eyes. Oh my gosh, there's so many things. And so, so my friend and I became good friends and her dad had been a pastor at a Christian church here. And they were really weary of my friend and I being friends because they were worried about me trying to convert her. But I did go on a mission, and one time she called up my mom and said, this is life or death. Like, I need Amy's phone number. Mormon missionaries aren't supposed to talk to anybody except their family on Christmas and Mother's Day are the only two times they're allowed to have phone conversations. So my mom, like, snuck her my phone number. It happened to be that I was home that day, and I answered the phone, and she was like, Amy, I'm freaking out. I've kissed a girl, and I might be gay, and I don't know what this all means. And she always talks about how I just told her to stay in the question. She's like, my Mormon missionary friend in Japanese, like I answered the phone in Japanese, and she's just like, Amy, is Amy there? You know? So she just kind of always just says that that was so important to her that I was just, I just told her to stay in the question. And I think that when you know and love someone that's gay, your feelings around the political issues around gay marriage and what that means and, you know, all those issues, it changes your heart. And so Prop 8 happened. The Mormon Church put a lot of money into, into Prop 8 in California. That was another time in my life where I was like, ooh, this doesn't feel good to me anymore. Prop 8 was the legislation to repeal marriage equality. Exactly. Right. And yeah, so okay. they were saying vote yes on it to repeal mm-hmm. it. Right. Correct. And so, and the Mormon so Church like, was pouring money into this to repeal it. Well, meanwhile, you're like, this ain't right. Yeah. Now. <laughs> right. Like they. Were, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it, it was it was a pretty pretty significant movement with of congregations to donate their time to campaign to donate their money for it. And so that was, I think, around in 2008. And I remember, so I was 28 at the time, and I remember that was a time where I was, I don't know how to reconcile this anymore. The big, the big push was we need to protect families. That was like the big thing. And I was, how does my best friend and her wife, at the time it was her girlfriend, but how do they even threaten my marriage? Right? Protecting means a threat. That you need to protect a, a bear mama, protect her cubs because there's a threat. Right? And I was like, I don't understand how my friend's love to her girlfriend 
is at all threatening to my heterosexual marriage. There's nothing about that that feels true to me. This organization that's been important to me that feels like family. In terms of like public space in the world, besides my home, I've spent so much time in Mormon churches. The way that the carpet smells and the gym smells and all the classrooms and certain books, there's this material culture that feels like family to me. And on a local level, they have what they call wards. And so in the geography that you live, you go to church with all the people that live in your neighborhood. It very much feels like the Mormon chapels are my a second home to me and the people that are family to me. It feels like that because, again, it's like such a lifestyle. It's been so a part of my life. So there's that balancing act to say, well, this is still really important and significant to me. And there's, there's things that I believe to this. But at the same time, what's going on here, right? Like, mm-hmm. why are they doing this? I, was, I felt embarrassed by it. I felt embarrassed that they were pushing so hard. I felt like to my, all my gay friends, I have more than one, right? It's not just like my best friend, but, I'm, but her personally really in, affected how I feel about the issue. So I felt embarrassed about this thing that feels like family to me. From about 2008, just trying to find, trying to find that space and that nuance to say, I'm trying to be mature. No one gets to define my Mormonism for me. I get I get to claim my own Mormonism. I get to belong here even in, you know, my maybe lack of belief on some things and total belief on other things, but I get to claim my space here. Like, this is mine. This is my Mormonism. This is important to me. And so then in 2010, my friend and her wife got married. My dad married them and did the ceremony. It was beautiful. And again, Your dad married them. What? Yeah. (laughs) Your Mormon dad married your My Mormon dad. My Mormon, he called himself a Zen Mormon is what he called himself, you know. (laughs) But still, I think it was so complicated for people to wrap their head around the fact that, like, that she was having my Mormon dad marry her. But she'd been so a part of our family, and my dad just loves her, and we love her, and so it felt and love right, is love. You know? Like love, and love is, is love. love. And, and we can learn. Yeah. From, I mean, I believe that the more expressions we have of it, the more it actually enriches and empowers us and the more we can learn from each other. Oh, I believe too. So, I totally believe that. Yeah. yeah. So again, like that's just my family. And I was able for a few years to really find just some, I can still find my space to fit here. Yes, there's some things, the women issues. I hope that I could see them making some changes around the Mormon issue or about the women's issue. And I could see them making some change about it around the LGBT issue, right? And so I was like, okay, like after Prop 8, it was there internally, there was like a lot of devastating feelings about that because the fact is, is it's not just these outsiders that are gay. We have Mormon insiders that are gay, right? And so mm-hmm. it affected families in a big way of saying, do I have to choose my church and support this legislation or do I go against my child who, you know, wants to be gay married? And so it was really, really internally, I think, a hard time for many, many, many Mormons. And there was some fallout and there was some backlash from that. And so I, so they, they did, there was a few things that they had started to make change. So from 2008 with Prop 8 to 2015, which is a significant thing for me, I was just trying to find balance. I was, I was definitely on a local level getting so much there's so many wonderful people like some of my most favorite people in the world are Mormon I was finding a good place like my local experience was that they knew I was kind of like crazy liberal Mormon Amy but they still like loved my voice in the ward and I felt very much like I had a place and so that was great like I felt very comfortable I was kind of like wow I think I will raise my kids Mormon like we're gonna do this we're all in you know and and it was working for me and I was seeing change and I felt hopeful about that and then in November of 2015 they, the church came out really in this kind of like sly kind of just like sneaky way, kind of put out this policy into the, where like bishops or bishops are what is kind of in charge of the local ward experience, the calm wards and the bishops in charge. And they have these handbooks of rules and the church just put into the handbook, this new policy that if Mormon people got gay married, they were declared as apostate, which apostate means basically like going against the word of God or going against God, right? Or going against the religious belief that they would be apostate if they got married and get excommunicated from the church. You know, which a lot of people that were, you know, gay were already getting excommunicated from the church. Sometimes if they had gay sex and broke the, you know, law of chastity, like even before you're married, you're not supposed to have sex. The big kicker was that kids of gay parents wouldn't be able to get baptized. And so if, say if parents got divorced and the kid like lived sometimes with 
the dad and his new partner and the mom and her new husband or whatever, they wouldn't be able to get baptized in the Mormon church. And if they then at 18 wanted to get baptized, they would have to disavow the practice of their gay parents. There's lots of people that are like, maybe the mom is Mormon and the dad is atheist, but it's fine for those kids to get baptized if they wanted to. And, you know, if the parents were okay so with it. It's punishing. It's like a double whammy. So not only yeah. uh-huh. are you right. like not welcome here, but you can't even come yeah. back if you want to because of something that's not your fault. So that was yeah, that was the straw for you, the final yeah. straw. That mm-hmm. was the final straw. Where I mean, it was a, a little bit of a slow slow fade out after that. But for me, and I know that it sounds like a total first world problem, right? But it felt like a huge grief in my life. I still get kind of emotional talking about it because it is one of those things, like I said, it felt like a death because this was like mm-hmm. a family, right? And I had mm-hmm. kind of nuanced it and stretched for so long to make space for myself in, in it, even though mm-hmm. I felt conflicted a lot. But this one finally was that thing of where I was like, mm-hmm. I can't look at my gay friends in the face and say, yep, I'm still completely going to Mormon church. And I know that they have these crappy policies, but it was just like, it just felt too hard for me to do that. Mm -hmm. And besides that, now I see lots of gay Mormon clients. Not only do I have my personal friends that it's hard for me to know what to say to them in, in all this, but I have gay clients, gay Mormon clients who I'm actually sitting in their pain with them about this. Mm -hmm. Seeing how hard it is to reconcile their Mormonhood with their gayness, right? Like, and what a hard, complicated, heavy, heavy feelings that is for them. And how much shame and how much internalized homophobia and how much hard sadness that they've experienced from being gay and also believing in Mormonism. It's just really, really hard. You know, my husband would work over at me and I would just be like in tears crying because I knew that this was the point where I was like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. It was interesting because there's a This American Life, if you ever listen to that podcast. Where, yeah, I love that podcast. Yeah. Oh, so good. I love Iris. Yeah. Also. I want him to be my best friend or something. But there was an interview that they were doing. This was during the Trump election where there was a radio host down in the South that really, really wanted a name. Cruz. Ted Cruz. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was like, he, so he was like this radio host, super wanted Ted Cruz couldn't believe when Trump got the nomination and they like went and they had interviewed him before Trump got the nomination. And then they interviewed him after, after Trump actually got the nomination. And this radio host was saying, they asked him, are you still Republican? And he goes, well, I don't know. Cause I, if this is the Republican party, I don't know if I'm Republican anymore. Mm-hmm. If they're not going to stand up for the principles that I feel like are deep Republican principles and vote this man in, like, I don't even know anymore. And of course, in their very like this American life way said, well, and this is our story this week. We're going to be talking about when you're going along with the group and the group feels like it's moving away from who you are as a person. And then you have to ask yourself, is this me? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then what that means mm-hmm. about who you are. And that's what I was faced with, with this policy change is that I had to look at myself and I had to say, is this who I am? That was when I was finally like, I, I just, I can't anymore. Your body knows stuff before your mind does, and it gives you Mm. twinges and feedback Mm. as things build. So I'm curious if you recall, how did that Mm -hmm. show up in your body? That's such a good question. It showed up in in my back, my anxiety, like I felt sometimes tight at church, or like people would say stuff, and I just, it, it felt cringy at times for me to hear some of the things that were being said. I specifically remember the night when the policy got leaked and people were, of course, on social media were like going crazy with it. I remember feeling like almost a disbelief of like, this is, this is not happening. This is so extreme. This is like, like retrenching in this, this like idea that again, that we need to be afraid of, of gay families and, gay people and and it was just it felt so in my gut that this wasn't right for about a week I would I would wake up and it would be like the first thought in my head right of just like I can't believe that this is happening I can't believe this twist of events that then this is gonna 
kind of required me to make some really pretty big changes about my investment in Mormonism. At the time, like my youngest was still breastfeeding and he would wake up early in the morning and I, I would just like feed him and put him back to sleep. I remember just sitting in the quiet of the bedroom, breastfeeding him and just like quiet tears dripping down my face of this, this is going to be big for me. I have to take a stand. I have to, I have to say that this doesn't work for me. And not only is there like the consequences of, you know, what that means for like my institutional investment into Mormonism, but there's so many social ramifications of when your family and when like my extended family and people in my neighborhood that I love and, you know, there's, there's all of that kind of social fallout also of what that means. That also was a big grief for me. I very much yeah. identified myself as a feminist Mormon. And, and then it's kind of like, and who, like, I, I always feel guilty to like, you know, the progressive Mormon feminist movement. Cause I'm like, if all, if all the feminist Mormons peace out, like who's going to carry the torch. And I feel like a legacy to my mom to be a person that carries that. Right. But I think I'm too tired. <laughs> I, I feel like my mom, like I look at my mom, she's, she turned 65 and she's been since her thirties trying to make change around women's issues in the church. And when I really look at the difference between what my mom's Mormon experience has looked like and what mine, the, second, the next generation down, my mom has been fighting for this for like, Oh, you know, 40 years, right. To make these changes. And there's times when I feel like there's not enough change, you know, like, so what then do I all the way till 65 to keep crossing my fingers, hoping for change. You know, like, I mean, it's that hard mm-hmm. thing of like, be the change that you want to see in the world. And I'm like, I know I should be the change. But then I also <laughs> feel exhausted by it. Right. I feel yeah. like, I, like my voice can't make enough change to make me want to invest all that's required of me to be engaged in Mormonism in the full way that, that it's supposed to be. That I, that, you know, the first 35 years of my life. Right. Yeah disengaging from that kind of took some time and it was like a slow process for me. It wasn't just like immediate, but, but I, I felt pretty good about it. I've mostly felt, I would say the first year and a half, I probably the primary feeling was grief for me. I didn't have really a lot of like, Oh, this is, Oh, this whole other world. You know, like I, I felt like mostly kind of sad, like this is my spiritual language the music like I you know I've, I've tried to go to other churches to see how it felt and Mormonism it's very much not like a band like you know kind of that Christian worship music and so it, yeah. it feels foreign to me to be in a church where there's like you know like a lot of worship music that I don't know that doesn't my spiritual soundtrack you know what I mean and so yeah. it's like it's been one of those things where it's like I, I felt like really homeless kind of the last few years and I don't know what to do with that and I'm okay to just kind of sit in that for a while and see where it takes me. But it's been a really interesting process to kind of just try to decide what's next for me and my family. Also, yeah. like feeling brave and hopeful that, that me and my husband are going to try to do a really good job of raising three boys for the world that will be kind men of the world. And I hope I can do that. I hope I can do that without the structure of the Mormon church. So I think I can. Yeah. I'm hopeful that I can. There's a couple things that come to mind from everything you just shared. One is the exhaustion, you know, the exhaustion of grappling with that for as long as you have and then finally reaching a point where you need to take a stand and the, the impact of taking the stand and the grief, like it can be overwhelming grief. You now having to find a deeper sense or a different, to me it feels deeper sense of belonging that's mm, not based yeah. off of yeah. agreeing to things you don't necessarily agree with. I know, you know? I know. And uh, I mean, I think we are confronted that in many different ways around racism, around white supremacy, mm. around yeah. all of the queer sexism. and gender issues yep. and mm-hmm. sexism. And like we are, I think, I know so many people and I can relate to just that is like, where is my home now? If I can no longer pretend like I'm okay with this false sense of belonging when I so vehemently disagree with, with the collective agreements of mm. this group. It's been said like, 
destruction precedes creation. I mean, we're seeing this all over, uh, reckoning, a crumbling, a... Yes, yes. A revolution. A coming to a, it's a revolution of like, okay, what are we going to stand for? Yeah. We've got innocent bodies being killed because of just asinine false beliefs. And mm-hmm. what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. I think, and I mean, you know that that belonging piece is, is huge. It's so yeah. huge. And then also, like, we need, we need to really find a way to create belonging that's based off our, our collective humanity, not mm-hmm. off of mm. tribalism. Yeah. You know? I, I totally feel like agree. that's what we're really being called to sit with and see the impact of. And it's heartbreaking and gut-wrenching and complicated and messy. Mm-hmm. So I feel it you. Messy. Yeah. I feel you. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. So that's been big. That's been a big shift. That's huge. And that's a huge, mm-hmm. that takes a lot of courage to like be willing to, to take a stand with so much on the line. I know with your work around, you know, with sex therapy, like that's all mm-hmm. about belonging and safety. Mm-hmm. Like that is root that chakra. Is. That is yeah. safety and belonging and protection mm-hmm. and desire. Mm-hmm. Can you take us through yeah. some of the, I know that you've mentioned, um, you know, some of the key themes you see with, you know, the people that you work with. And I know, like, uh, it's collective. Like, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people are dealing mm-hmm. with the things that you see coming through your office. And I know you mentioned shame, um, mm-hmm. around, like sexual shame, and you help people work through that. So, and it's just, I don't think it's no coincidence that, like, you're, you're, like, helping people heal around their sexual shame. And then, like, the place that you've called home is like sexually shaming people. Like there's no, it's not a coincidence. You've had to like take a stand on that. So I know. Yeah. Thank you for doing, taking the stand. And also how can you help? I mean, I have work to do around this. I know many people have, there's more freedom to be reclaimed around Mm -hmm. breaking free Mm -hmm. from shame around sexuality. Can you share Mm -hmm. with us, you know, maybe two or three things that, you recommend to people working through that. Yeah. Yeah. Sexual shame. Yeah. And it is, I feel like it's a gift that I get to sit with so many people around this. Right. Cause, cause it is, it's, it's a deep part of us. And uh, unfortunately too many people have had traumatic sexual experiences in their life. Right. That's like, Oh my God. Like so many, so many people have like the whole me too movement. Like, Holy Mary, Mother of God! Like I know, it's so it's like everyone almost. I it's know. shocking. I know. I know. I mean, like just like reading through like your Facebook feed, like with yeah. Me Too stuff, right? Yeah. And and how significant to me, I feel like when people are sexualized too young or in a traumatic way, it does, it leaves a mark on your soul for sure. Totally. You know, or your spirit or whatever you want to, whatever you believe about, like what, our essence or whatever, but, but it feels, okay. It so, feels sad to, mm-hmm. sorry. so I've been, I was sexualized too young and it, and in a traumatic way. So where do I start? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I've worked mm-hmm. with you on this too, but I'm just yeah. curious, like, and I know I'm not alone in this. I know so many people mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. have had mm-hmm. similar experiences and, I mean, there is a spectrum of trauma and there's a spectrum of violence. Like, where, yeah. where yeah. do we even start? Like, I know. where do you even start? Yeah. I think, like, I feel like the biggest thing that I, I can sit with people around is, is that internalized shame, right? Mm-hmm. With any, anybody that's had trauma or sexual abuse or, I mean, you name it, right? There's mm-hmm. always this level of, was it actually my fault that this happened? Like, totally. what... What could have I done different? Did I should have said mm-hmm. no? Maybe I could have spoken up. I'm a little girl, but maybe I could have said something different. You know, like mm-hmm. maybe I could have hid, hid better from my uncle or my dad or, you know, like maybe I could have said no stronger t- when I was having like sexy things happening with that boy. You know, maybe yeah. I mean, it's just like all that kind of stuff that you think like I should have or could have done this and maybe that horrible thing wouldn't have, been, have happened to me. And so unpacking that internalized shame that comes 
so easily with horrific sexual experiences. Yeah, and or so, even non-horrific. It's a faux pas issue, I think, for a lot yeah. of people, like, especially in yeah. American culture. If you grew up in a, in a conservative religious structure also, my wonderful colleague and supervisor, she just wrote a book called Sex, God, and the Conservative Church. Her name's Tina Sellers. Tina Shermer Sellers. You can find her book on Amazon. If, cool. what, but what's, been, what's interesting from her book is that she finds that religious sexual shame is how she defines it, shows up in, in very much of the same symptoms that sexual abuse shows up. Hmm. So even if you haven't been necessarily abused in a, a religious structure, the symptoms that people come in and present in your office look very similar to someone that has been sexually abused. So like you Mm. said, even non-horrific, it's not like people can say, oh, it was, I mean, sometimes there's horrific things said, but it might not be sexual violence or actual physical sexual abuse or assault. But the words Mm -hmm. that are said to people sometimes around sexuality is traumatic and Mm -hmm. it shows up in similar ways. So being able to just have a space where you can unpack the story in a safe way I think it's really, really powerful. And it's, it's hard work. It's not easy, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure like, with, like it, you know, like with any sexual trauma that you've had, it's hard to really, like, it's painful. So having to, like, look at it full, eyes wide open as an adult or having space from the experience. And so how do you kind of do some of that, like, inner child or inner teenager work to kind of heal yourself back then as a big person now? Right. Mm-hmm. As a person that's safe and and you know secure in your life, some people aren't. And has agency. Has agency. Has yeah. the, you know ability to see the complication of that as a younger child. Because usually when we're when we think of trauma, we're viewing it from the eyes that we were when we were experiencing the trauma. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to be able to say like, wow, I'm a big person now and. I can, I now can keep that person safe, that inner child or that inner teenager, whatever. I can put her on my back and say, I got you. So we're going to look at this with, with me, me being the one that keeps you safe. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's hard work to do, but it's, it's it's, possible. It's possible. I've seen it so many, I've seen change in so many people that I feel Mm -hmm. like sacred space to be with people in that, you know? So, it's such a sacred journey. It's, it's a reclamation of your inherent, I mean, this is part of why I love the story about your dad, like saying, it's good, it's fun, it's sacred, mm-hmm. it's something to yeah. be celebrated, it's, you're mm-hmm. right, as a human, it's, it's something that you can, oh, I mean, when I hear you talk about it too, like it's something you can practice and cultivate and change, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's an inherent and really big part of who we are. So I think that there's hope, you know. Absolutely. I hear you there saying there's hope. hope. We can heal I'm from it. I'm telling the world yeah. you can. And it doesn't mean, like, I, hate, I really, really don't love when people say, oh, you just got to get over that, right? Oh, so I'm like, yeah. That is not something that you get over, right? That yeah. isn't something that you get over. But the goal that I always, when I'm sitting with clients around, around this stuff, is my goal is to help them integrate it in a way in their life where they can find meaning from it, right? Where they can say, this is how it shaped me to where I am now, where it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel so raw in their life every time they have to like revisit that room that they've like locked and put up a bunch of like, like locks on it so they can't get into that room because if they open that door to that room, it's going to be too scary to open up that room, right? Because there's some scary things in that room, right? Mm-hmm. To say, how do we open the? How do we unlock it? How do we open the door? Kind of let it out. Let it be integrated into your story, right? Yeah. It. You did not have control what happened to you at the time, and we're going to make sense. We're going to unpack what what it was that happened to you. Yeah. And then how do we say? How do we reclaim that for yourself and say, I get to go forward, writing my own story from here, even though I didn't have yeah. that much control over what had happened to me. And yes, yeah. it will always be a part of me but it's integrated in a way that I'm not going to get over, right? I'm never Mm going to – some of those – you just don't get over some of that stuff. Well, I think one of the things I've learned is that you can actually – when you shift the framework around it of like, okay, yes, this, I can't rechange this, and yes, there's scars, and I've lost some things, but I've also gained 
things from this. Like yeah. I've gained a deeper sense of strength. I've gained a more powerful relationship to asserting my agency. I have gained mm-hmm. strength and resilience and a depth of joy that wouldn't have happened, wouldn't be there mm-hmm. had I not been through this. Mm-hmm. I ga- I've gained a, right. a deeper, richer, broader sense of empathy for right. other people Which who indicate have experienced to me, similars. Yeah. Emily, that you mm-hmm. have done some work on that. The fact oh, God, that you yeah. can even say that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. The fact that you can even be able to, like, articulate that, I'm like, wow, you've done some work then on it, right? Oh, for sure. Because it's, it was more work to have this, like, scary thing unconsciously smushing and shaping me than to, like, look that motherfucker in the eye and say, mm-hmm. hell yeah. no, not anymore, because too much of my life has already been sacrificed because of this insanity and I know like I'm not alone in that because the people that helped me heal had done that for themselves as well and so Mm -hmm. to not be defined as like oh you're damaged goods you'll never be the same Mm -hmm. yeah no one's ever going to be the same we're never the same and you also Mm -hmm. gain something from working through and healing trauma absolutely so I'm I'm so so glad that you're doing that I'm so sorry that happened to you thanks baby Mm -hmm. it's all good and and I mean I know yeah, but that's the thing that's so heartbreaking is that like people have that, and so I do. I do feel like it's my life mission to kind of help people around those things, and also help couples. Like I love, I love helping couples be able to like find desire for each other and figure out mechanics that aren't working and figure out how to connect better that way. Because I do think it's an important part of our humanity. We come out of the womb wanting to suck and have comfort and connection, right? Yeah. And I and I believe and you know, my supervisor Tina, she always says this, I love it. She says, We are wired for connection and pleasure. Totally. We are wired for it, right? That it, it's part of who we are as people to want to connect that way. And it's unfortunate that there's just a lot of sadness that comes with it. I want it to be a different story for people and I want it to be able to get people to reclaim it in their life. Because a lot of times when you have trauma you're like I'm not messing with that, man. That's too, too, too big. I'm not going there. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's a, trust, a sad piece to miss, you know. Yeah, to trust the process. Like when the time, like there's something, I think, to the element of time that you can't streamline or like mm-hmm. life hack to. Like there's something mm-hmm. to gestation. There's something to seasons. There's something mm-hmm. to trusting. Mm-hmm that as as well so Mm -hmm. do you have any starting points for helping people tune into desire Mm -hmm. female pleasure female desire because that's something that's so oppressed right oh my gosh I love this topic so yay I do too where to to start where to start okay okay so my favorite my favorite um book right now for women and men too but Mm -hmm. it's a book called come as you are by Emily Nagowski, N as a Nazi, A, G O S K I, Nagowski. Okay. She is for sure my favorite right now. Like I also want to be her best friend. Okay, but she has a, <laughs> she has a TED Talk that you just say Emily Nagowski TED Talk. But her book that she wrote is called Come As You Are. In there, there's one of my favorite things when she kind of talks about the science of desire and things like that. In, in our brains, we have what they call a dual model process around sexuality. So you have your gas and you have your brakes, okay? So, like, gas mm, is like, yeah. oh, I'm excited. I see myself in a sexy bra and I feel very sexy with my feminineness or whatever. And then, or you're just like, oh, I'm horny. I feel good. I'm excited. You know, like, that's all the gas stuff. Oh, a vibrator. Oh, whatever, you know. And then we mm-hmm. have brakes that are like, oh, there's dishes in the sink and my house is a mess and I didn't shower today and, you know, like all the things that might be like breaks for you. Everybody's got their own mm-hmm. gas, and their own breaks, and knowing your own personality around those things are really important, okay? And so being able to kind of figure out, wow, like a lot of times people think, oh, you don't have desire, you just need to put more gas on. But in the research, they find that actually what you should do is like really look at your breaks and try to find ways to like help those breaks not be breaking all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that I think is really important, which for women this is a big thing, is that there's a spectrum of sexual desire and one end you have what they call spontaneous desire, which is like, I just feel like having sex right now and now I'm having sex, you know, or like, Oh, do you want to have sex? Sure. Like, let's just have sex and I'm horny already and I'm ready to go and I'm all like, let's do this. Okay. So that's, you know, 
typically the idea that like men's desire is that way, right? The higher percentage of men are that way than women. Okay. Or on, on the other sponta- end, have spontaneous desire. Have spontaneous desire, right? Okay. Okay, and then on the other side of the, of the, the whole spectrum of it is they call it uh, responsive desire, which is kind of like, oh, I don't really feel like having sex, but we said we were going to have sex on Friday night, and it's Friday night, and I'm really tired, but we should do this, and oh, then things start going, and things start happening, and then you're like, oh, maybe I'm not so tired anymore, right, because then yeah. the arousal process starts and things like that. So the, actually, the majority of people are either somewhere in the middle or on the responsive desire, both men and women, the majority of people are kind of somewhere in there. Sometimes you have to lean into your responsive desire, right? Like maybe initially you're mm-hmm. going to say like, oh, I'm not really feeling this way, right? But then if you kind of like lean into it, the arousal process starts happening and then things start going and like your body's like, oh, genitals start working. Oh, yeah, that feels good to have that touch happening, you know. Then your desire comes, but sometimes we just think, oh, I don't feel like having sex at all, so I must have no desire. When it's like, actually, there's like really a spectrum. Like sometimes you might feel like, wow, I'm super excited to have sex anytime, and you're feeling more spontaneous desire. And other times it might take you a little while. But sometimes just knowing what's true for you and being able to say, I'm in a partnership where I, we both have to communicate about where we're at in terms of our desire spectrum is really, really pretty important. And I think it makes a big difference for women to be able to own that and be okay with it and know their own sexual personality. You That's know, so person. big. So big. It's just like so big for people because a lot of times people just feel so diminished because they're like, he, that person that I'm with is the high desire partner and I'm never going to be able to give them all that they need and I'm, oh, I'm a horrible partner and I'm stupid and oh, why can't I figure this thing out, you know. It's yeah. like, oh man, we've got to realize that we're actually thinking that you're more normal than you think around sexuality. And if you aren't normal, then that's okay too though. You know, like we all have an erotic template. We all have, like there's a whole bunch of things on the table of the sexual buffet table and being able to like say this is what I like and being able to know that is a really important piece where I think for women specifically our voices have been silenced for a long time around pleasure and we've been conditioned to think that it's all about the man's pleasure porn teaches us this patriarchy teaches us this layer religion sometimes teaches us this in unconscious ways What I'm Mm -hmm. so pissed off about that I keep getting reminded of is that there's this women need to sacrifice to be a good daughter, to be a good sister, Mm. to be a good mother. It's all about sacrifice. So then when you then go to the bedroom and then now you're supposed to be like this hot and bothered sex fiend and you're like such a 180 energetically, you're like, are you kidding me? Come on. I keep getting reminded in many different situations and relationships in my life of this narrative to be a good woman is about mm. sacrifice. Yeah. So that's why I think it's hard you know for what? a lot of women to shift those gears, you know? It is really hard. And Esther Perel, she, or Esther Perel. Uh, you know, love her. Yes. So she's rocking it with talking about this issue and trying to blow it up. Mm-hmm. But what she finds is that for men, most, and I know that, again, I'm talking about like men and women, but of course, gay couples also apply to in some ways. For men, a lot of times their experiences, they say nothing turns me on more than her being turned on. A lot of times men will say that. But for women, women are like, no, if I'm not feeling sexy, if I'm not feeling like that I'm into this, that my head's in the game, I don't care how excited he is. I, in my own mind, have to feel sexy. I love how she says she's like, Female sexuality is much more narcissistic. Sexy in order Hold on, to, say that again. Female sexuality is much more narcissistic. We have to feel yes. sexy. In order to want to be having sex. Hmm, that makes sense. But what's hard about that is, again, this like being able to claim your space to say, can I feel sexy? How do I feel sexy? Am I allowed to feel sexy? Yeah, I get ple- I get to have pleasure. I'm worthy of pleasure. Like mm-hmm. I get to be in the space of where there's a reciprocal relationship happening. I'm not yeah. here just to take care of anybody. What I love is she says women have to get out of that social role of taking care of someone in order to really mm-hmm. have fun and to let go and to enjoy sex, which is hard for women, right? To yeah. just like say, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take care of this person that I'm having sex with, man or woman. Yeah, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. So. So that's big. So being able to like really allow yourself to let go 
in sex is a really big thing for women that I, that I work with. Mm-hmm. One of the practices I love from Regina Thomas Hauer, she's the author of Mama Gina's School of Womanly Arts. She talks about the power of pleasure and having a ritual of adding pleasure into your life. And it's not just sexual. It's like an inquiry. You're like becoming an anthropologist of your own sensuality and what arouses desire in you. Mm. Prioritizing pleasure. We prioritize Mm. work. We prioritize Mm -hmm. other people. Pleasure is what also life is about, you know, and that's what gives us oxygen. So having practice And sometimes it takes effort to put put yourself in a space for it. If like, Mm -hmm. I know that you do yoga a lot. Like, it's not like you just Mm -hmm. magically appear at the yoga studio. You have to put your yoga clothes on. You have to drive yourself to yoga. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people think, again, that spontaneous desire. Oh, it just magically appears. And I'm like, no, sometimes it actually takes work. Again, Esther Perel says, sex is not a thing you do. It's a place you go. Right? Ah, Wow. And I love that. It's that idea of you go, you meditate, you go to a place, you have intention with it. Yeah. And why would we not think that we have to do that with our sexuality either? It's a place you go. It's a place where you say, I get to have love. I get to have security and safety and pleasure in this space. And it's so wrought with landmines and painful thorns and shame. But there's also Mm -hmm. so much liberation and wholeness Mm -hmm. on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. So it's... Absolutely. uh, you know, I'm so yeah. glad you're doing this work, love. I love it. So glad. Such a yeah. good work. So, yeah, Emily so Nagowski's TED Talk, anything from Esther Perel, fantastic. Both of those things are great for women. And Mama Gina. <laughs> Mama Gina's helped me so much. I want to move into the final questions. So what do you want your life to be for? Like, what do you want the essence and the mission and the legend of your life to be for? Oh. It's such a big question. I love that It's a huge question, yeah. Um, It's so hard to think about. Like, you're like, will I die young or will I die old? And, you know, like, will that matter? But I think that I want to be remembered, at least for my family, of, like, someone that gave my whole heart to Mm -hmm. my husband, who I totally love. He's so awesome. To my kids, who I think are really cool and I want to. I want to raise them to be good people, but I also want them to feel like my mom loved me a lot, like she unconditionally loved me, right? And mm-hmm. so I would hope that that would be a legacy of just like Amy was a lot of fun. She loved people. Just kind of the things that I feel like I'm good at. Like I also, that's I think what I want to be remembered for, you know. In terms of my work, I would love to have people say that, that I made an impact on them, that the work that we did in the quiet of my office help them have a better life, help them mm-hmm. be more content with who they were, have more self-love. I feel like self-love deprivation is a huge problem for people. And if I had a shot I could give of self-esteem and self-love, I would be dosing it out daily. And yeah. so hopefully just by having the work that we do, I can help, help infuse that somehow with people. Like that would be what I would hope to be remembered for, at least for my career work. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I love to share a gratitude practice and encourage the listeners. I I think when we hear what others are grateful for, Mm -hmm. it it helps us think about what we're grateful for. And Brene Brown teaches us that gratitude and joy are twins. And the more gratitude we practice, the more joy we not only bring into our own our own life, our own mind and hearts, but then we then get to emanate that out into the world. So I'm curious, what are you grateful for? Mm -hmm. Mm. Lately, I've been really grateful for health, and I would say health is wealth. Mm-hmm. I get to move my body. I get to take walks. I get to breathe air. I get to have healthy kids. I feel really grateful for health right now and for my body, even yeah. as it's so easy to slip into that being cruel to yourself about bodies for women, And but it's just, oh, my gosh, I have this body that can do so many things and has birthed three children for me and I, I want to be grateful for it and give that gratitude towards it versus like being very critical, which I think it's really easy to slip into. So I'm really thankful to be healthy. I feel honored that you had me today. Thank you. It was so You're fun to have you here. The world, Emily Jenny. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Love you are too. Mm-hmm. Thank you so um, much for sharing this conversation yeah. and your wisdom and your work and 
your story, your life. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for letting me have a vulnerable place to do it. Thank you so much for listening. Again, that was Amy Heffernan. If you have questions, want guidance to finding a sex therapist in your area, or for Amy's latest workshop, you can contact her and learn more at amyheffernan.com. That's A-I-M-E-E-H-E-F-F-E-R-N-A-N.com. If you have a story to share or an experience that helped you find your voice, I'd love to hear your story. Please go to she'sher.com and click on the button that says share my story and sign up for our newsletter for updates on the latest releases and opportunities to connect. Tune into the next episode. More inspiration, wisdom, and insight is on the way. Until next time, standing in our collective liberation, be well.